Hey guys, so glad to be back with you. First off, thanks to the most awesome staff that we keep out there in the foyer who are just doing such a great job. I also want to give a special shout out to so many of the volunteers that are being the, the hands and feet of Christ uh, through so much of this calamity. Um, and also to a couple of the volunteers that have really gone above and beyond. Especially this week, I want to th say thanks to Steph Herrera who made two of the videos that uh, that we played on Easter Sunday that I know were so meaningful to so many. So thanks to everybody. So um, glad to be involved in this community. So proud to be your pastor. When I was a kid, I was a skinny kid. I mean, I was like a really, really skinny kid. I mean, like the pediatrician was tracking my weight just to make sure my parents weren't abusing me, skinny kid. And to add insult to injury, my even today large head was the same size back then. I presented to the world more as a bowling ball balance on a toothpick than a middle school tough guy. Now, my dad, he was different. He wasn't skinny. Not only that, my dad wasn't five foot six like I was. My dad was six foot five, about 220 pounds, and, and he knew it. I think for most little boys, their dads are somewhat mythical in nature, but for a scrawny kid like me, maybe even more so. I, I wanted to be strong like my dad. I remember this one time in our front yard, a neighborhood tough guy came walking through, and I didn't know much about him. I just knew he sat at the back of the bus with the cool kids, that, that his hair kind of went all the way down his back, and he had an incessant smell of Marlboro about him. Anyway, my, my dog came running up, and, and he kicked the dog, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, no, Dad, don't say anything. This is going to be awkward, and that guy is kind of big. But sure enough, um, not in a mean or a threatening way, but, but my dad very directly informed him that he wouldn't be kicking the dog anymore. And then the neighborhood guy, the neighborhood guy, he listened. You see, I always felt a little bit bigger or stronger, badder, if you will, when I was with my dad. I was a little bit more courageous. I was a little bolder. I was a little more confident when I knew he was around. I was reflecting on that this week, thinking about the days after Easter. Let me tell you what I mean, way of background here. Some of you guys know these stories, but Jesus' disciples, in one way, they were tough guys too, in the same way I was. They were tough guys when Jesus was around, but to put it kindly, they were something less than courageous when Jesus wasn't. I can give you lots of examples of this. You know a lot of them. Remember the time when they were on the boat and the storm kicks up, but Jesus had remained on shore? The waves are crashing. They're scared to death. But here comes Jesus on the water in his words. Take courage. Don't be afraid. It's all right, guys. I'm here now. On and on we could go. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and, and Peter's there with him. The Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Well, he jumps up in front of them, and he picks a sword fight with the Romans. But just a couple hours later, he's arrested. After Jesus is arrested, a young girl confronts him, and Peter denies Jesus and runs off. Oh, you remember Palm Sunday, right? They, uh, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the Passover meal, and the disciples are all marching in the parade. Friday night at the cross, almost none of them are there. 
Easter Sunday morning, Jesus is resurrected. They've heard it from the women. They've heard it from a couple of other followers who had met Jesus on the road. But yet Easter evening, where do we find them? In a room with the doors locked out of fear. You see, when Jesus was there, they were bold, tough guys. They were men of strength. They were men of conviction. When Jesus wasn't, well, when Jesus wasn't, they're a lot like me, maybe like you. And and that's what got me to wondering this week. Because Jesus, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus leaves again. And he gives them what we know now as the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard that. Matthew picks up this story. Um, he writes that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. I just love the honesty here again. It, if you're Matthew and, and say you were trying to conjure up a resurrection story, you don't write this, especially since he would have been one of those 11. The only reason you would write that some doubted is if that's exactly what was happening. Some still couldn't believe this could be true. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because of that, because I have all authority... Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he tells them what I know they were hoping to hear. And surely, I'm with you always to the very end of the age, which you could just imagine would just embolden and empower them. But there was only one issue. You might remember Luke was this educated first-century Greek physician, and he had set out to investigate all the claims about Jesus and to write what he described as an orderly account of them. Luke picks up the story in the first book in the New Testament after the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then Luke continues on in a book called Acts, documenting the next 30 years of church history. And so he continues the documentation of his investigation, and he says that, after his suffering, Jesus, he presented himself to them, the apostles, and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. I'm sure he did. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. He goes on, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure the guys were going, okay, here, the Great Commission again, got it, check as long as you never leave us or forsake us, we are on it, Jesus. We are bold, fearless men of faith. But my guess is they didn't see what was coming next. After he said this, he was taken away from, from before their very eyes, and a cloud hit him from their sight. Wait, what? Yeah, that's it. Gone. Gonzo. Poof. No more. Jesus has left the building. Now, based on everything we know, so far at least, so should the disciples' confidence and boldness and courage. I mean, look, facing down the back of the bus thugs in my neighborhood is one thing when my dad's in the yard with me. Facing down your fear and changing the world is one thing when they thought Jesus was there with them. It's a very different story when he leaves. And so I started asking myself this week, what happened? I mean, here's what we know. That night, the apostles and the followers headed back to Jerusalem. That night, Luke tells us there were about 120 of them in all. But within a couple of weeks, he writes that at least 5,000 men had come to believe. 
because of the courage and confidence and conviction of the disciples. What changed? Something happened to turn chickens into champs, to turn the cowards to the empowered. And I couldn't help but wonder this week if that same thing could change us. As I said in the intro this morning, we're going to have to order off the menu, though. We're going to have to forget about the pop culture platitudes. Um, We're going to have to instead look at what happened to these 120 or so folks and say, God, I'll have what they had. God, in the midst of this season, which is a lot like that season, locked rooms, fear on the street, hopes and dreams on hold, could you give us, could you give me what you gave them? I'll have what they were having. So, a little like Luke this week, I tried to figure that out, to investigate and create a detailed record of what changed, because I want, because we need what they had. And what they had, it turns out, was best as I can tell, not just one thing, but really three things that rooted them and gave them power and conviction and boldness and peace and certainty in very uncertain times. Let me jump in then and give you the first thing they had that you and I need. They had conviction. I want to show you what I mean by that. They had deep conviction. Let's jump back into what Luke had investigated and reported. He said one of the first things that the disciples did once they got back to Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended was to replace Judas. Now, if you don't know the story well, if you don't know what Judas did, I don't have time to get into it right now, but we'll put it this way. It was pretty bad. There are lots of people around today walking around with the names of Peter and James and John. There are not, for that reason, a lot of people walking around named Judas. So Luke tells us that Peter said, it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. Peter looks around and says, guys, we need to fill, uh, fill the place of Judas. And to do that, here's what we need. We need an eyewitness. We don't need a good speaker. We don't need a good worship leader. We don't need a, a good Bible guy. In fact, the Bible didn't exist yet. We need someone who saw everything that happened like we did, but then check this out. Do you know what the most important thing was regarding their qualifications for the job? For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You see, guys, that for the disciples, that was the key qualification. It wasn't their power or their prestige or their gifts. It wasn't even their theology. What they said is, if we're going to put somebody else in this tribe, he's got to have been a witness to the resurrection. He's got to be able to testify about it with us. And so, they choose from the group a guy named Matthias. And and about seven weeks goes by. That's it. The events I'm going to share with you this morning, they don't happen years after Jesus' crucifixion or miles away. They happen in the same city only weeks before where Jesus had been crucified. Perspective, we've been in quarantine for four or five weeks. This only happened about seven weeks after Luke records, after the the crucifixion that Luke records, that there was another Jewish festival in Jerusalem. And the streets, again, they were packed with pilgrims from all over the countryside and region. And in that packed city, suddenly a commotion arose. A a, a big stir got, got boiled up. We're going to circle back to that, but it draws a lot of attention on the streets. 
And the 120 so are of Jesus' followers, they're at the center of the commotion. The last place they would want it to have been only a day before. Luke says that they're in the midst of the commotion. Peter, the same Peter who ran from the schoolgirl, stands up with the 11. He raises his voice and addresses the crowd, and he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen to carefully what I'm going to say. And he goes on. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He's reminding the crowd of something that they know. Most, if not all of them, had been in town a few weeks before, and they knew all about who Jesus was. They knew all about what he had done, and they certainly knew what had been done to him. He goes on, he says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him, on to, to, by nailing him to the cross. Suddenly, the coward is bold. Jesus is ascended. Last week, they're in a locked room, but today, Peter's waving his finger at them. You guys knew who he was. You knew what he did, and you guys did that to him. But, Peter says, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so you can go back and read this sermon. Peter continues and he quotes one of David's prophetic psalms about the Messiah. But he also reminds them about this fact about David, one of their patriarchs. He says, David lies dead and buried in his grave. But God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses. You see Matthias over there? He's with us now because we checked him out, and he's a witness to this resurrection too. Luke says, in light of all of this, when the people heard this, they were cut to their heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, well, brothers, what should we do? I mean, you're right, all right? You win. We did do that. So now what do we do? And, and Peter replied, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent, which means change your mind about Jesus, who he was. Believe that he was the promised Messiah of God, that, that his death wasn't because he was like a rebel rouser, but that his death had, had a cause. He paid the price for your, your injustices, your sins. And, and then be baptized. Go public with your faith. Luke writes that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Why do I tell you this? Because you need to understand the very first sermon ever preached after the resurrection wasn't about what Jesus taught. There was no discussion of the prodigal son or the woman at the well. The Sermon on the Mount's not even mentioned. The very first sermon after the resurrection was simply about this, the resurrection. You see, guys, it was their conviction in the reality of the event, the truth that emboldened them, it's what changed them. I mean, it keeps happening. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, instead of being locked in their rooms now for fear of the Jewish leaders, they head to the temple in Jerusalem, home of the Jewish leaders. When they go in, they encounter a man that's been crippled from birth, lying there begging. And Peter and John, they have no money, but they go up to him and they said, we're going to give you what we have, and they heal him in the name of, of Jesus. Well, as you can imagine, this man, he leaps to his feet and he begins to run into the temple. He's jumping all around, praising God. 
And everybody in there who's passed them for years sees this. And as you can imagine, it begins to cause yet another stir. This time, not out in the streets, but in the temple. But instead of running like he had in the past, this time, Peter, right in the middle of the temple, he gives his go-to sermon. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Here he goes again. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You killed the author of life, but here it is again. Here's the point again. Where does Peter suddenly get his confidence and boldness from? What changed him? Because here's what we know. It wasn't the faith he grew up with. It wasn't what his mama had, had read to him at bedtime. It wasn't his knowledge of the scriptures, which he probably had memorized from the time he was a child. It wasn't even walking with Jesus or his teachings. He knew all of that. He had done all of that before, but it only resulted in his fleeing and hiding. What was the foundation of Peter's transformation, hope, and the certainty he had in uncertain times? It was a conviction about one thing. He said, you killed the author of life but God raised them from the dead. We're all witnesses of it. I saw it. I know. And so I can't help but wonder if there's a question for us in that this morning, especially in what everybody refers to as uncertain times. If we find ourselves, in a sense, shrinking back in fear, if we find ourselves with lots of uncertainty, lots of anxiety, and little hope, is it possible that our faith has not been anchored in this fact but instead was just stuck in mere story. Keep coming with me here. Peter, he gives the same instructions as he did on the street earlier. Now he does it in the temple, repent and believe. But this commotion, it winds up getting back to the religious leaders in the temple, and they have Peter and the apostles arrested, or Peter and John arrested. The next day, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, that's the very group who just seven weeks earlier had persuaded Pilate to crucify Jesus. Same guys, same names. These are the men that Peter and John just days before had been having nightmares about. Now, Peter stands up. Rulers, elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then I need you to know this. You and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healed. <laughs> Check this out. Luke writes that when they saw the courage of Peter and John, which is a word only days before nobody would have ever associated with Peter and John, these guys knew how they had fled and hid. When they saw their courage and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Here's my bottom line. Here's the deal for them, and maybe it's a deal for us. What changed, I think, is this. When you lose your fear of death, which they had, that's why Peter fled, it's why they all hid. See, I mean, they had it. They had seen Jesus killed, though, and embalmed and tombed, but then they had seen him all over Jerusalem, walking with them for a month and a half. And Jesus told them what God had done for him, he would do for them. Guys, when the resurrection becomes real and you own it, not, not, 
that it's not just something for Jesus, but for you. When you lose your feel of death and, and the, oh, I only get one chance, or you only go around once, when all of that starts to fade away, don't all the other fears? I mean, FOMO, FOMO fades in the shadow of empty graves. This is why they told him, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard, what we've seen and heard, what we've seen and heard. Not what our mama told us, not what we heard from a pastor once. I'm telling you, we saw and heard, not just his teachings, not just his miracles. We didn't just experience his friendship. We saw and heard the resurrection. Next chapter, Acts 5, they're at it again, and they get themselves arrested and bought before the same guys who threatened them and warned them to stop. This time they throw them in jail. Luke says that they're miraculously let loose during the night, but instead of running home, instead of running away, now they run back to the temple courts and they pick right up where they had left off. And so the Sanhedrin, they bring them back into the court again, and I'd imagine they're pretty fired up at this point. And they, they look at them and say, look, we warned you to stop. Why don't you stop? Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors, here it comes, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on the cross. Guys, conviction, confidence in the resurrection. If God raised Jesus from the dead and he promised to do that for me too, what can you really do to me? And at this meeting, this is, this is amazing, at this meeting there was a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a renowned teacher of the law. In fact, the apostle Paul, Paul took pride in the fact that Paul was trained under him. Well, at one point during the trial, this same Gamaliel, this revered teacher, he excuses the apostles and sends them out for a minute so he can address the Sanhedrin. He says, guys, look, it's likely this is just another band of people trumping up messiahs. You know messiahs have been coming and going. In fact, he even names a few of them. It'd kind of be like a modern-day retelling of, of David Koresh and Jim Jones. And, and he concludes, therefore, like we might. He says, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it is from God, you're not going to be able to stop these men you're only going to find yourselves fighting against God. Stick with me here. See, the first thing that gave certainty in uncertain times was a conviction in the resurrection. They were sure of it. That's where they rooted their faith and hope. But the second was this. The second thing that gave them this incredible power and confidence was the comforter. Their courage and boldness, it wasn't merely of human origin. They didn't reach down for some kind of inner strength. If they had, they would have failed like all the others. See, they were empowered by the Spirit of God. It turns out Jesus had ascended, but, but he had not left them alone. Earlier in his ministry, he explained to them what was going to happen. They didn't understand it, but he had told them, it's for your good that I'm going away. He said, unless I go away, the advocate... Or in the King James, uh, the Holy Spirit here is referred to not as the advocate, uh, but as the comforter. The advocate or the comforter will not come. Unless I go away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, Jesus said, I'll send him to you. And that's just what he did. The comforter came. 
See, that was the commotion in the streets that set off all of the events that we've just read about. Prior to his ascension, Jesus gave this command. He told him, look, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait here for the gift my father promised. And then he reminds them, you've heard me speak about this. He goes on, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is just what happened. In Acts 2, Luke records that the disciples were in Jerusalem as Jesus commanded, and he writes, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And at that moment, guys, I'll never leave you or forsake you. At that moment, that power gets real. The power of God, the Spirit of God promised by Jesus to all who would believe, it becomes experiential. At first, he manifests himself by allowing the disciples to suddenly speak the languages of everybody in the crowd that day, all of the pilgrims in Jerusalem, so they could hear the testimony of the resurrection. And then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, here's what he said to him. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes on, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That promise is for you. That promise still stands this morning for you and your children. That if you repent, if you change your mind and you believe, the Spirit of God will indwell and empower you. You won't have to fake being brave. You will be. In fact, the Apostle Paul, indwelled by that same Holy Spirit, he would say you'd also have love and and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That sounds like a pretty good recipe for surviving a quarantine to me. If you would just repent and believe. See, if you've given your life to Christ this morning, you've exchanged yours for His. His Spirit dwells in you. Can I just encourage you? Access it. Access that life. Root into that power. How do you do that? Well, spiritual guides have been been laying out ways for generations, different disciplines that would help us to hear the voice of the Spirit within us. I don't know. Here's what I would make it quick maybe for you this morning. A lot of us have a lot of extra time on your hands. Use it to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Do you want this power? Take the time to access it. This morning when I got up to work and get ready to, to, ready to come and preach, you know what I did? Here's, here's how I accessed the Spirit of God. I sat down. I, it was early. It was dark. I plopped some headphones on my ears, and I started listening to a couple of wor- worship songs. Um, Grave to Gardens. I'll sing of the goodness of God. Check those two out. Read Psalm 103. It's hard to be scared, hard to be angry, hard not to rest. When you're rooted in in that, when you're hearing the voice of the Spirit, go for a walk, look up at the sky. Your Father, who's big and strong and mighty and more powerful than you can imagine, has not left you alone. He's still here, and He's still taking on the thugs of the day, fear and loss and worry. And then finally, there's this third piece. What gave the, the disciples certainty in times of uncertainty, courage in the same places and before the same people that they once feared? You know what the third thing was? Community. They knew people had their back. 
Luke says right after the comforter had come, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anybody who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Later he writes that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own because it didn't matter anymore. But they shared everything they had. I love this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. This morning, guys, I want you to know you're not alone. As we testify to each other about the resurrection and believe, I want you to know that you were invited into more than just an online service. I mean, I know we can't be together, we can't gather in each other's homes right now, but we could still get into small groups. You know, most of our small groups are still meeting. We can still gather on Wednesday nights for Family 15. We can gather on Thursday nights on Zoom and pray. If you're in a position to help somebody else or to give, then as a follower of Jesus, let me invite you to do just that. Go to mhcc.life and, and give. Or sign up to help someone. And this is important too. If you need help in, in all of the uncertainty, if you've lost your job, if, if you can't get out of your health, you need to go to mhcc.life and let us know that. You need to drop the pride thing a little bit and allow the church to be the church. Community, knowing you're not alone, you haven't been abandoned. See, Jesus has not left us alone. He has left us with his spirit and it dwells within each other. That's how this works. This Sunday after Easter morning, I want you to have what those first followers of Jesus had. Guys, I want you to have such confidence in the resurrection. I want you to be so convinced of its authenticity that the fear of death begins to fade. And if you can overcome the fear of death, then really, what fear can't you overcome? What are you going to be afraid of? This Sunday morning, friends, I want you to access the power of the advocate that dwells within you. I want you to experience the comfort of the comforter and the counsel of the counselor. You, go get yourself alone. Put the headphones on. Read a psalm. Worship. Look up to the sky. You have a power that's alive in you. The same power that conquered the grave lives in you. That's not just a song. Access it. Experience it. And the fear will fade a bit, the hope will grow a bit, and I am telling you, if you will just get yourself there, if you will make time for the Spirit and press in, I promise you, you will feel a peace overcome you that you will say is not of this world. And finally, this Sunday morning, gosh, you could express your love of community in the comments here on Facebook and how important this community church has been for you. But... I want you to know that, that if you're part of this community, you're part of a, you're part of a community that loves and cares about you and, and, and that is committed to being the church one to another. I don't want to be defined merely by what we believe. I want to be defined by how we love one another and everybody outside the walls. With that in mind, can I ask you to pray with me? Father, with the conviction of the resurrection rooted deeply in our hearts and minds, with the comfort that can only come from the comforter himself, and with the confidence and the love and grace of your church. 
For everyone listening this morning, may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard their hearts and their minds in the resurrected Christ Jesus, their Lord. Amen. Have a great week, Mendham Hills, and I will see you Wednesday night, Thursday night, and back here on Sunday once again.